Well, I hope you've been enjoying our sermon series in the book of Isaiah. I know it can be challenging at times uh, to try to understand uh, deep and rich uh, words of poetry of Isaiah as they relate to a context of people that we're somewhat unfamiliar with. But I tell you this, the amount of effort that we put into understanding uh, the book of Isaiah reaps great benefits to us all. Today's sermon is the second part from last week's sermon. There we saw that the people of God in Isaiah's day had a decision in front of them. Will they trust God to care for them? Will they give their allegiance to the Lord who loves them and who fights their battles, or will they reject the Lord? And we know most all of ancient Israel at that time rejected their God. And we saw that because God is love, he does become angry when his people reject him. And so he is right to judge his people. So last week we looked at the decision and the judgment. This week we will build upon what we saw last week with these two headings, the grace and the triumph. The passage is lengthy. Uh, Bear in mind that God is working to build a a remnant of his own people and he's going to strike down Assyria. So beginning in verse 16 of chapter 10. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire and his holy one a flame and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest, this is the nation of Assyria, and of his fruitful land, the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will be more, will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end, as decreed, in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aath. He has, he has passed through Migron and Michmash. He stores his baggage. baggage. They have crossed over the path, pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Rama trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lesha, O poor Anathoth. Mabonizing in flight, and the, the inhabitants of Gabim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. 
he will shake his fist at the mountain of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great height, height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and the child shall lead them. The cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coast lands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulders of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. <laughs> this is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, to our ears, these words, um, they sound majestic. Uh, they sound eloquent, and yet we, we lack understanding of all these names and peoples and places. And yet this is really important for us to understand who you are through these texts. So um, through me, help, help me to explain this text that our hearts might delight in you all the more, we pray. Amen.
A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The concept you have in your brain concerning who or what God is, is the most important thing about you. If you insist there is no God, then every facet of your life will be infused with that belief. If you say that God is what you want him or her or it to be, then your life will be lived infused with these beliefs. There's no way around it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's what Tozer says, but not so our modern influencers, right? Influencers in our society insist that it is your self-image that is the most important thing about you. In other words, society tells you what comes into your mind when you think about yourself is the most important thing about you. Now, it's important to have a good self-image, but the problem lies in how one obtains a healthy self-image. Do we fashion our self-image with our own hands? Or do we entrust our self-image to the work of God's hands and his grace? For 10 chapters now, Isaiah has been calling his people to lift their heads towards heaven. Remember, much of Isaiah's work so far is just trying to get us to get to give us a proper perspective, a perspective that comes from God in heaven. He wants our minds to be rightly filled with right thoughts of God. And what Isaiah shows us in our text, it must cause our minds to marvel at what God is up to. God, listen, God is bending his heartfelt attention towards earth and bringing about a fix for all things that, if it is true, must captivate us thoroughly. The problem is, we so often lack enthusiasm about the things of God. We hear that heaven is going to be magnificent, and we hardly bat an eye as we scroll endlessly through the Netflix new releases. Isaiah's desire is that he would break through into our minds with the most important thoughts we could ever have. For God has promised us nothing less than a new world. One where he rights all wrongs, installs eternal peace and happiness and universal flourishing. God will do this. And by his grace, he is bringing us along for the ride. God is triumphing in grace over the failures of this world and over your own failure. Last week, we looked at the decision and the judgment. Today, we continue with the grace and the triumph. First, the grace. I remember a few years ago when a friend of mine was lost in the woods at night. Spoiler alert, we found him. I was in the woods along with dozens of other concerned family and friends and police officers. There was a helicopter that circled the woods with a spotlight shining into the darkness below. The spotlight moved around upon the canopy of the trees and it lit up everything that it shined upon. You can picture that scene, right? Well, that is what Isaiah is doing. 
except instead of a dark forest, he is shining his spotlight upon God himself. And this spotlight helps us to have right thoughts about God in our heads, as Tozer says. First, the spotlight shines upon the purged. The grace of the Lord God of hosts promises to purge the Assyrians down to just a few soldiers. We see this in verses 16 through 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his, that's Assyria's, stout warriors. And under his glory, a burning will be kindled like the burning of a fire. Isaiah then poignantly describes the Holy One as a flame that burn, burns giant forests and even little thorns and briars. Verse 19 summarizes the result of God's action. There we read, the remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Though God used the evil Assyrian empire, to seriously punish his own godless people. There was a day when it will all come to an end, and it did. And the Assyrians were so few in number that a five-year-old could count them on his fingers and toes. What is Isaiah spotlighting about God? Ray Ortland Jr. writes that God has the means at his disposal to do whatever he wants with the forces of this world that are opposing his grace. From flu to fire, God can use it. And also, the people of God in every generation, we have lived as outcasts on this world, right? Misunderstood at best, beaten and killed at worst. But with Isaiah's portrait of God here, believers of every generation find encouragement in every situation to endure with hope. We see here that those who oppose God will find their supposed victories that they're simply fuel for the fire. Next, Isaiah shines his spotlight on the purified if you are a Christian, you will find your life story poetically described in verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. That's your life story. Remember, a remnant is that which remains. And what is the distinguishing marks of those who remain? Verses 20 and 21 show us these two marks. One is a real faith and the other a real repentance. First, the mark of real faith. In a simple sense, faith is what you lean upon in life, right? Think about it. Whatever you lean upon for security, for coping, for confidence in the future, it is what you trust in life to give you the best life. And the truth is, life presents us many saviors to lean upon. Verse 20 shows that if we trust in the wrong savior, we, we end up in the end having that savior beat us up. Again, verse 20. 
The survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The things we lean upon other than Christ will strike us in the end. Do you understand that? Recently, Katrina Bookman won the largest slot machine jackpot ever. Kids, listen up. She took a selfie with a slot machine in the background, which read, Printing Cash Ticket, $42,942,672.76. Largest jackpot ever, right there in Queens. Well, the Resorts World Casino in Jamaica, Queens, refused to pay her any winnings. They declared that the slot machine malfunctioned. They did offer Bookman a complimentary steak dinner. <laughs> Talk about things that you lean on in life striking you. Isaiah shines the spotlight upon God in the world we live in. We tend to lean upon things that strike us, abuse us, and mock us. Think about how we lean on beauty or prestige or academics or career success and how in the end they sadly strike us. But the grace of God, when it comes upon you, will never cause you to feel like you got the short end of the stick. When you lean on God, he does not strike you down or let you down. And so the mark of real faith is trust in God for all things. God's grace is upon you to set you apart as his remnant in this fallen world so that you become one who leans on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So let me ask you, search your soul. Do you lean on the Lord? The other mark of the purified that Isaiah spots lights is the mark of real repentance. Isaiah spots this, this spotlights this repentance in verse 21, where we read, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Remember this title, Mighty God? It's part of the messianic title for the child who was born. Isaiah 6, we read that not too long ago. And his name shall be called, what? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This title speaks of the, our Lord's military expertise. God will fight and God will win. And the word return, is this not repentance language? As Christians, we, repre we, re we repent at many times for many things. But the imagery here is specific. It's that of repenting. Listen, we need to repent of fighting our own battles in our own strength. For we are to trust in the Lord to fight on our behalf. My friends, this is how we as Christians are able to live as peacemakers. How are we able to turn the other cheek or walk the extra mile? See, we know that God will one day judge all people rightly, even those who make our lives difficult. And since we know this, we trust God to fight our battles. 
Since justice is in mighty God's hands, we ourselves need not be vindictive. And this allows us to live with love for others, even our enemies. So Isaiah has spotlighted the purged and the purified. Next, he spotlights the poised. Once again, this is his people. In verse 24, Isaiah shows us how the Lord God of hosts makes God's fearful people poised with confidence. Verse 24, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, okay, we should probably listen, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. Now the Lord is speaking words of hope. Be not afraid of the Assyrians. Remember what happened in Egypt and how I rescued you? These words are meant to instill confidence. Then in verse 26, Isaiah reminds the people of how God worked unlikely victories in the past. Sometimes it's important for us to look back and how God has delivered us in the past so we can have faith to walk in trust of God in the future. Verse 26, and the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. This is when you kind of need to know your Bible, right? And his staff will be over the sea as he will lift it as he did in Egypt. Both of these victories were improbable in our human eyes. There was 300 people chosen by God that went up and defeated the enormous Midianite army. And the nation of Israel was backed into the corner against the Red Sea by the Egyptian army, only to have God open up a way through the sea. When we are weak, God is strong. This power for the weak is summarized in Paul's understanding. Many of you know this verse, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he said to me, he being Jesus, speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's grace and power only comes to the humble and the weak. And when it comes, it comes in amazing power. My friends, this truth is meant to cause you to be poised with confidence. The last part or our first point on the grace of God is the pruning of the enemies of God. Again, the attention is turned towards haughty Assyrians and how they are brought low the pruned. Again, God promises ancient Israel that Assyria will meet its match. It's summarized in verse 33. Isaiah continues with this imagery of a forest being hewn down with an axe. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height, the trees in height, will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. Like a skilled tree surgeon, the Lord will cut up the branches and then cut down the trees, the trees representing the nation of Assyria. With terrifying power, God will do this. If you recall from last week, remember, Assyria was what? Assyria was the ax in God's hand, purifying God's own people. But now the Assyrians are themselves a forest, 
being felled by the axe in God's hand. This imagery is meant to spotlight the truth that God will one day prune every branch and every tree that does not bear fruit for his glory. And so Isaiah is shining his spotlight upon how God works in mysterious but powerful ways in history to turn it on its head. Seeing this helps us to live, knowing that even though the world seems stacked against us, and though it seems the wicked prosper while the righteous fall, this is not how God sees it. And he will work to cut down all that opposes him and his people. So that's the first point. The grace. God has shined, is shining, and will shine forever his grace upon his remnant people. And we, we get to live with these promises. We get to live trusting in God. That's the grace. Now for the triumph. The triumph is seen in chapter 11. Perhaps you notice a little turn, a little change in the wording there. Now how does chapter 10 end, right? Chapter 10 ends with the infestation of human pride, like a vast forest being cut down by God's swinging axe. The whole corrupt system is what we see, and it falls. And all there is to see in every direction is what? Tree stumps. Try to picture a Lord of the Rings-like scene. A giant battle is ended, clouds ominously darken the landscape, no sound, no birds, no life, no tree leaves waving in the wind, just tree stumps as far as the eye can see. There's no life whatsoever in the world, or so it appears. Then the camera zooms in to one tree stump in particular. Suddenly something new appears. From one of the stumps, a little green shoot springs forth. It grows and grows and bears much fruit. That's what we see in chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Who is Jesse? Well, he's the father of King David. Remember, God made a covenant with David that that his offspring would reign on the throne forever. Isaiah says that the shoot of green that will grow and bear fruit upon this earth comes from Jesse and King David's family tree. Isaiah was thinking of whom? A little boy born in obscurity. The one he talked about earlier in Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. And in chapter nine, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That is what Isaiah has in mind when uh, he, he tells us this prophecy in Isaiah 11. 
It points to the very Son of God, born of the Virgin Mary, whose earthly father was Joseph. Guess what? A descendant of King David. Jesus was born to carry the government of this world upon his shoulders. The one who will establish eternal peace upon the throne of David forever and ever. But Isaiah shows us that the Messiah will have more than a royal lineage. Think about King Ahaz. Remember him? It's not too many chapters ago, right? King Ahaz was a descendant of David as well, but he was spiritually dead. He even offered up his own son in a sacrifice to foreign gods. Talk about wicked. But Jesus has the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Understand this. I, I think you know it. If you know your own sin and how things, your own flesh works in your own life, you know that the mechanism of power that we humans wield is earthly. It's selfish. It's corrupting power. My friends, Jesus did not wield such power. And so his power builds a kingdom, listen, far different than anything from earth. Matthew writes these words about when John the the Baptist baptized Jesus. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God the Father sends God the Holy Spirit upon God the Son, Jesus. And if the Father is well pleased with the Son, so must we. Please have in your mind this truth. Listen, there is no one greater There is no one better qualified to rule the world than Jesus. We Americans have rejected this notion of a king with the Declaration of Independence. We esteem our representative democracy, but let's be honest. As good as democracy is, it only can be as good as its representatives. And on both sides of the aisle, our representatives fall away but not so King Jesus. He is on his throne in heaven, and one day when the time is right, he will rise and return as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, to bring about the age to come. And we who belong to the Lord will live on. We'll live on a renewed and restored earth, and the Lord will come down and dwell with us and we will forever enjoy our lives in our new resurrected bodies, and we will delight in his eternal kingship over us. For he will not be like our earthly tyrants. We see in verse 5, 4 and 5, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Listen, what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is righteous 
and faithful just by being true to himself. Jesus never needs correction. He never needs to be upgraded. There are no TED Talks that can improve Jesus in any way. And so for us, this means we need not be reluctant in yielding our lives to him. We need not be guarded, and we must not hold back. That's what King Ahaz did. God said to him, do not worry about these nations that are all around you. Trust in me, and all will go well. But Ahaz did not trust the Lord, nor did his people. And that, my friend, is our greatest sin. We fail to trust the Lord to save us. And instead, we act in this world as our own saviors. In doing so, we disrespect the Lord, who is the only savior of the world. The Lord alone is able to save you to the uttermost. And that is what we need. The Christian is someone who, even with the smallest of faith, has turned to the Lord and leans on him. Ortland writes, and when we start to trust him more than we trust ourselves, we're beginning to understand what it means to trust him at all. My friends, this is the triumph of God's grace over our failure. When we try to govern our own little worlds, we fail. But when we trust our own little word, worlds to Christ, he brings us into his triumph of grace over this world. Are you able to see your life this way? Now, the triumph of the Lord isn't just over our human life and sin. He renews all things, nature itself. This is portrayed in this amazing imagery in verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child will lead them. I don't know about you, but I don't let my little children near uh, lions. It's just not a good idea this day. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play, all, play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Our world is not like that yet, but it will be one day. Only the Lord, anointed with the Spirit, is able to renew nature and bring about this peace. And think about it. He made this world. He loves it. He will not abandon it. He will transform it so that all of nature will be restful, secure, and innocent. Every square inch of the world will be the holy mountain of the Lord. We're almost done. Portland provides this insight. The triumph of Jesus will not be the rise of religion. His salvation is not confining that way. It's not even a private bliss. Nor will he set us in the clouds to play harps and sing in mass choirs forever. 
The victory of Jesus will be the awakening and purifying and restoring and gladdening of all human things. His kingdom is the only final answer to poverty, hunger, injustice, illiteracy, and all the other sorrows we have created. His grace will add sparkle to World Cup soccer, classical guitar, business ventures, monopoly with the kids, everything human to the greater glory of God. The problem with this gospel is not that it's too small to deserve our faith. Its beauty and its magnitude surpass our faith. And listen, the proof that God gives that this day will come true is the resurrection of his son. The immortal newness of Jesus' resurrected body. Remember, he rose from the grave. His body is completely different. This body is proof of God's audacious plans, that they are true and sure to come to us. Ortland writes, even now, listen, even now the fullness of his kingdom is only an inch away. All that stands between the present moment and the promised future is the command of God. He is not waiting for favorable conditions in human social evolution. All he has to do is give the order and Christ will come and judge and save and rule because he himself is our peace. And so Isaiah is not telling us when. We all want to know when, right? He's telling us who. And that should be enough for us. Isaiah is spotlighting for us the grace of God that triumphs over our failure. This is the hope of the gospel that we get to embrace by faith this morning. So the question is, will we? Will we embrace this future that Christ is bringing? Nothing can stop him. So, is there anything stopping you from leaning on him fully? Let's pray. Father, it is true, the thoughts that we have in our head concerning you are the most important thoughts we could ever have. We confess that often we don't think about you or the world you're bringing or about your grace towards us. We're thankful that in these few minutes we were able to. We're thankful that you encourage us with your scripture to lean on you and not the things of this world that can only strike us in the end. We pray for fortitude, we pray for faith, we pray, pray for repentance in our lives, and we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.